Well, good morning, everybody. It's nice to see all of you. Uh, I have some news that I'd like to share with you. Uh, we have been without a campus pastor here in Shakopee for a while. It was about a year ago that Pastor Mike announced his resignation. And I bring that up because I was talking to a couple this week that were brand new to the Shakopee campus, and they didn't know that we didn't have a campus pastor here in Shakopee. They thought that Mark, they said, isn't that Mark guy the Shakopee campus pastor? Uh, And so I'm bringing this up because there may be a handful of people in the room who don't know that we're without a campus pastor here in Shakopee right now. And I want to let you know that we are going to have a special guest come and fill the pulpit two weeks from now, right? So, so a very special guest whose name I'm probably not free to share because I don't want to mess things up at his church is going to come and stand somewhere up here in a couple of weeks uh, and preach here in Shakopee. I'm telling you this so that you will mark your calendars, tell your friends, because you're going to want to come and be a part of that. You'll get more information about that this week and who it is that's coming in order to uh, be a part of this process, but we're very excited. Uh, he is great and excited to have him come and share with you. A- anyone looking forward to that? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Wait, what was that? You're, you're so happy you'll be rid of me? Oh, oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. Appreciate that. Well, we come to the end of our wholehearted series today, you guys, and we have been looking at a particular book in the Old Testament. What is that book? Malachi, that's right. And what have we been doing as we look at Malachi? We have been looking at the sins and the mistakes of Israel and saying, hey, hey, we don't want to make those. They were involved in half-hearted worship. And God said, you guys don't love me and you're not honoring me. And we want to love and honor God. And so over the weeks in this series, we've seen that in order to love and honor God, we need to be wholehearted in our sacrifice of our lives to him. And we need to be wholehearted in our obedience to every commandment that he gives us. In order to love and honor God, we need to be wholehearted in our faithfulness, particularly particularly in our marriages. Wholehearted in our pursuit of purity. And last week we saw we need to be wholehearted in our giving and generosity towards God and what he's doing. Now as we come to the very last passage in the book of Malachi we're going to once again experience a dialogue back and forth between God and Israel. Maybe you've noticed that as we've been going through the book of Malachi, there's a constant back and forth between God and Israel that's flowing through the prophet Malachi. And God initiates that conversation today, and he does so with a complaint that he has against Israel. He says, "'Your words have been hard against me,' says the Lord." Now, now how does Israel respond to that accusation? They say, how have we spoken against you? Who? Us, Lord? We wouldn't possibly. Come on. And so, as he has each and every time, God's going to offer an example of how they have been sinning and falling short. And here it is. You have said it is vain to serve God. Meaningless, that word means, to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Do we have any students in the room? We got a handful of students I see out here. 
What if you went to school and you walked into a new class and the teacher gave you a big assignment and you went home and you poured all of your energy into that assignment? You produced the best assignment you have ever produced. And you came back to class and you turned that assignment in along with a lot of your other classmates. And when you got that assignment back, it had a big red D at the top. And as you talk to other people in the class, you realize that there's a lot of other students who clearly don't take their studies very seriously who got better grades than you did. And you went and you talked to the teacher and you said, can you explain to me how I got a D? And the teacher said, well, I, I didn't really look at any of the assignments. I just wrote grades at random on the top of the papers. How would you deal with that? What if he then assigned another assignment for the following week and you went home and you put in all of this time and all of this energy to produce a really great assignment? And when you turned it in and got it back, there was a C- minus at the top. And you looked over at the guy that sits next to you. Let's call him Jim Bob. Right? You looked over at Jim Bob's paper and all Jim Bob had done is write the name on the top of his paper. And he got an A. And you said, wait, what? I put in all this time and effort and I got a C minus. And Jim Bob, who wrote his name on the top of the paper, got an A? What's going on here? Right, how would you feel about that? Well, what are the chances that you would put a lot of time and effort into the next assignment? What is the point of putting all kinds of time and effort into an assignment if the grades seem to be assigned totally at random. And that is essentially what Israel is accusing God of. They're saying, wait a minute, God. You seem to be assigning blessings at random. Here we are, your people. We're trying to follow your law. Well, we've seen in the book of Malachi, eh, on following the law, right? But at least we're given it kind of a shot here, God. And yet all of these nations around us who reject you entirely, who are sacrificing their children to false gods, they're increasing in wealth. They're increasing in power. What sense does that make? It looks like you're not checking the homework, God. It looks like you might be just assigning blessings at random here. I want you to note that in their attitude... The Jews were worship mercenaries. What, what does that mean that they were worship mercenaries? It means that they were worshiping God because they wanted to get things out of it. They were worshiping God so that they would get paid in blessings. Did you notice the word prophet with an F? In that verse, they wanted to know how worshiping God was going to profit them. How are we going to gain out of this God? And by the way, Lord, if there's none of the blessings that we expect, they're going to come out of worship. What are we even doing this for? Right? There's no love in that kind of mercenary approach to worship, is there? God, we will worship you if you bless us the way we want to we be blessed. What if tonight... I decided to do the dishes after dinner, not because I care about my wife, not because I don't want her to have to do them, but I do the dishes because I think that then she will be motivated to do all of the other chores around the house. And so I do the dishes so that she'll vacuum and she'll mow the lawn and she'll prepare dinner. And that is my motivation for doing the dishes. Is that loving? 
Right? If my wife was here, would she be happy to hear me saying these things? No, you can say no. Absolutely not, right? Because I'm being, in a sense, a mercenary in my marriage. I am only doing this good thing so that I will be blessed and get more in return. And that's where the Jews were. They were worship mercenaries. God, if you're not going to bless us the way we want to be blessed, what is the point of even worshiping you? And ultimately, we don't want to be like that, right? We want to worship God out of our love for him. We want to worship God because he is God and he is worthy of worship. And so we don't want to be worship mercenaries simply worshiping so that we will get. We want to, be worship, we want to worship out of love for our God. Occasionally, people will come up to me and they'll tell me that they have really had struggles in their devotions or they've really had struggles in going to church. And so they've kind of cut it out of their life because they don't feel like they're getting anything out of it. And I always encourage those people that it is at those times when you don't feel like you're getting anything out of it that you have your greatest opportunity to express love for God. Because when I feel like I'm getting something out of my devotions, when I feel like I'm getting something out of worship, well, well, it only makes sense that I would participate in it. I'm getting a selfish benefit out of it. But when I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of my devotions, when I don't feel like I'm getting anything out of worship, but I do it anyway because I want to honor God and because he's the priority in my life, then I am expressing genuine sacrificial love. And so when we don't feel like we're getting something out of it and we choose to worship God anyway, those are the greatest expressions of love that we make in our life. Now listen to me. God blesses us like crazy when we worship him. Have you experienced that? Right? Absolutely. God blesses us and he loves to bless us, but we don't worship him because he'll bless us. We worship him because we love him and because he's God and he's worthy of our worship. Now, there were a group of worshipers in Israel at this time who were worshiping God in sacrificial love, a small remnant of faithful worshipers. And that remnant is talked about in the next two verses. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. There's a faithful remnant in Israel, and what is it that characterizes this faithful remnant? They fear the Lord. Have you heard that phrase before, fear the Lord or fear of the Lord? It's used over and over again in the scripture. What does it mean to fear the Lord? When Several years ago, we had a dog. And that dog had a fear of thunderstorms. And so when the thunder would start to go off and the lightning was flashing, that dog would go and hide under our bed. And it would not come out, no matter who called the dog. And it would just shake and quake under the bed. Is, is that the kind of fear that we're supposed to have of the Lord? 
No, that is not an example of fear of the Lord. We are never to be terrified of God. We're never to dread God. We're never to be hesitant about coming into his presence. As a matter of fact, Hebrews says as his children, we can come before his throne with what? Boldness. We can come into God's throne room with boldness as his children. But fearing God does mean we have ultimate awe and reverence and respect for him. There's three words used in the Old Testament about fear. I put those up on the screen, and one does mean to dread, and another means to be terrified, but the one that's used here and when we talk about fear of the Lord means to have reverence or respect or awe. We're never to be the dog hiding under the bed when it comes to God. That's not the kind of fear we are talking about here. But we are to have a fear of the Lord, a reverence and an awe that places his opinion and his thoughts about our life above anybody else's, and it's not even close. You want to know what it practically means to fear the Lord? It means that his opinion is all that matters in our life. That's fear of the Lord. When I was a student... um, When I was a student in seminary, I did a preaching class where there were six fellow students and a preaching professor. And we would take turns giving sermons, and every time that I would give a sermon, everyone would offer a critique of my sermon. Everyone got together and talked about all of the stuff that I did wrong in the sermon. Now, as all of those students and the professor gave their feedback on my sermon... Did I count all of their feedback evenly? Absolutely not. Those six fellow students, they were preaching idiots just like I was. They didn't know what they were doing. What did I care what they thought about my sermons? But my preaching professor, he'd been a pastor and a preacher for 30 years, and he'd done a great job. I cared what he thought. Not only that, he, he held my grade in his hands. Right? He, he was my proper judge for that class. And so his opinion was up here. My fellow student's opinion was down here. If I preached a sermon and all six of the students said, that's the worst sermon I've ever heard. But the professor said, that was a really great sermon. How would I feel leaving the class? I'd be on cloud nine, right? Because I didn't care what any of the rest of those jokers thought. It was my professor that held my grade in his hands, it was my professor whose opinion I cared about. And that is an illustration, a very imperfect illustration, of what it means to have fear of the Lord. His opinion, his thoughts, those are what matter well above anything else. And the Bible says that because we fear the Lord, because we value his opinions above anyone else, there are are changes that take place in our life. For example, because we care about what he thinks above everything else, we turn away from sin. When we care about what God thinks, and his opinion is up here and everyone else's opinion is down here, we care about not sinning anymore. We care about being obedient when we have the fear of the Lord. Two-thirds of the time, In the Old Testament, when the phrase fear of the Lord is used, it is directly connected with obedience to God. Because when all we care about is what he thinks, we want to be obedient to him in all things. And because we care about what he thinks above all other things, we're headed down the path of wisdom. Where does wisdom begin? 
It begins with an understanding that what God thinks and what God says is what truly matters in life. And that that's the focus of our life. And so there were this faithful remnant. A faithful remnant that was characterized by their fear, their reverence, their awe for God. And the passage we just read says God is keeping track of this remnant. Did you notice that? It says that he has a book of remembrance and that he is keeping track of those who are faithful and who have the fear of the Lord. And he's keeping track of their deeds. Now this phrase, book of remembrance, is used one other time in the Old Testament. And it's used in a book that was written about the same time as Malachi, a book called Esther. And in Esther, the king of Persia can't sleep. And so he asked that the book of remembrance would be brought and read to him. Probably because the book of remembrance was so boring, it would put anyone to sleep. It's like, come on, bring that book of remembrance. I got to get to sleep. And they come and they read from the book of remembrance. And he is reminded that there is a Jew named Mordecai who saved his life and never was rewarded. Now, it seems that that book of remembrance, as it is seen in the book of Esther talks about those who were faithful around the king and their deeds. And here we see that God is keeping track of those who are faithful, who fear the Lord and their deeds. And ultimately, they are his great treasure. Did you notice that he says, those who have a fear of the Lord are a part of my treasured possession? If you have a fear of the Lord, if you love God, If you've placed your faith in Jesus, God wants you to understand you are a part of his great treasure. The word that's used here was often used of precious stones that were passed down within a family. I I, I do not have a bag of precious stones like this at my house, but back then there were families that would accumulate diamonds, rubies, sapphires, precious jewels. And they would keep them in a very secure place. And then they would pass them down as an inheritance to their family members. And these precious jewels were set aside and cared for and and hidden away so that no one would steal them. Because they were often worth more than everything else that a family owned. And God says, that's you. If you have the fear of the Lord, if you are a follower of God, friends, you are a part of his treasured possession. You are his precious jewel. And maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you don't feel like that at all. But that is precisely who God proclaims you to be if you're one of his followers. Not everyone is a part of his precious treasure. We're about to see that in about 15 seconds. But if you are one of his followers, you guys, you are a precious jewel before the Lord. Now God goes on to talk about the fate of those who have a fear of the Lord and those who don't. Those who are faithful and those who aren't. Those who serve him and those who don't. Those who are his followers and those who are not. Beginning in the last verse of chapter 3, he says, Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Now he starts in with what the ultimate fate is of those who are not followers of God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. God says there is a day of judgment coming. And on that day of judgment, the wicked, the unrighteous, will be burned up like the chaff that is stripped off of the wheat. In the New Testament, he talks about that day and he says, He will punish, God will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Israel doesn't understand why those nations that reject God and live in wickedness seem to be experiencing temporary blessing here in this world. And God says, I need you to see it's temporary. I need you to look with eternal eyes that ultimately those who reject me, they experience eternal punishment. And he wants Israel to recognize this and respond to it because God doesn't want them to be among the wicked. God wants them to be among those who are a faithful remnant. And so he outlines the blessings for the faithful remnant that come on that day of judgment. Look at this. He says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus acts upon his people with healing in his wings. It is through the work of Jesus Christ and God's great mercy that we can be healed of the great plague that infects each and every person, the plague of sin and selfishness. Jesus comes with healing in his wings, and we are told that on that day we will receive new bodies, no longer bodies that expire, no longer bodies that are fatigued, no longer will we grow weary, but we will have new bodies, and, bring, and he will bring healing to us. But beyond physical healing, he'll bring healing to our souls. All of the sin the selfishness, the insecurities will be wiped away as Jesus brings healing in his wings. And we're told here that we will break free. As those who are his followers, those who have a fear of the Lord, we will break free from this world of sin and brokenness and we'll experience so much joy that we can't handle it. It'll be an overwhelming amount of joy. We will be like calves released from the stall in the spring. Right? The, the picture here is of uh, young calves who have been put in a stall over the winter time, a crowded stall. And in the spring, they are let out of the stall so they can go and roam the countryside. And how do those calves feel about that? They are so excited. They are so filled with joy. We are told they are leaping, right? At, at my age, that's about what I got for leaping. But, but, but I think there's going to be a time when my body is restored when I can genuinely leap again. And, and this says that there will be so much joy, we will be a people of leaping and rejoicing as we are set free. When my son was eight years old, we made a trip to the Badlands. And if you're going to make a trip to the Badlands, generally, from where we live, you drive there. 
At eight years old, my son was not particularly good at sitting still. I believe he asked me four times in the first half hour, are we there yet? And you could tell he just was confined in, I think we were... I think we were driving our Toyota Corolla across country and he's got stuff packed all around him and you can tell he just feels like he is in jail. When are we going to be there? When do I get to get out? And we finally arrived at the Badlands and if you've been to the Badlands, then you know it is the ultimate playground for an eight-year-old because there are hills and there are caves and there's all kinds of things to explore and there are no fences anywhere. There are some signs that warn you about rattlesnakes, but we all ignore those, and we just start running around. And when he got there, after hours in the car, and that car door opened, he exploded out of the car, and he could not get enough of just running around and exploring and climbing on things and jumping. He'd been set free from his prison. And and that is us. As those who fear the Lord... As those who follow after him, we will be set free from the prison of this world of sin and brokenness and there'll be so much joy that we will be like those who just leap up and down because we cannot contain all of the joy that there is in his presence and in our new reality. And so the question as we near the end of the book of Malachi is, which way is Israel going to go? Are they going to heed the warnings of the book of Malachi and become a part of the faithful remnant who wholeheartedly worship God? Or are they going to continue on with their practices that show no love and honor for God? Those who fail to show love and honor to God experience judgment for eternity. But those who will be faithful who will repent and turn, they will experience God's goodness and they will be his precious treasure forever. Which way will Israel go? Well, God obviously wants them to be a part of that faithful remnant. And so in verse 4, God stops speaking through the prophet Malachi and he speaks directly to the people with this invitation, this command. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. What is the law all about? If you had to sum the law up in one sentence, how would you do that? Jesus did it by saying, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. The law is all about what? How we love God. And so as the book of Malachi wraps up, God says, Israel, come back to me. Come back to me and be a part of this covenant relationship. Love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love me by being obedient to these commands that are all about love. And if they do that, what will God's response be? Do you guys remember last week a verse that Mark led you through? Chapter 3, verse 7 said, From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Right? Do you realize what he's saying right here? For decades, no, for centuries, I've wanted us to be in love relationship where you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've wanted you to honor me as your God. 
But you have offered me half-hearted worship. You've broken my commands. You've worshiped idols and other gods. And so God says, I'm done with you forever. No, that isn't what he says. Right? How does this verse end? He says, despite everything that you've done right now, if you return to me, I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Despite the fact that you have been unfaithful to me in this relationship for centuries, if you will repent and return right now in the fear of the Lord, if you will be a part of that faithful remnant, I'm here and I want to be with you. God wants them to be a part of that faithful remnant so bad because he recognizes judgment is coming and he wants them to understand. You guys, be a part of the faithful remnant. Judgment is coming. And that is how he concludes this book with a couple of verses that remind us judgment is coming. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah will come as a messenger before the second coming of Jesus. Now Jesus says that John the Baptist was a form or a type of Elijah that came before his first coming. He says he, he is Elijah, if you will accept that. But Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 11 that Elijah will come. Not only will he come, but when he comes, he will restore all things. Now when Jesus says that about Elijah coming in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is dead. He's not talking about John the Baptist here. He, he is talking about the Elijah who will come before his second coming. And there will be restoration. Jesus brings restoration. And that restoration can be seen in relational restoration. One of the ways that sin always works its way out is by breaking apart families. And we see that here. You look at the book of Genesis and the impact of sin. What we see are broken families. Brothers who can't stand each other. Marriages where people are unfaithful. We see parents frustrated with their children and children who are disobedient to their parents and won't follow after them. Because sin breaks relationships. And we see that within families. But in ultimate restoration, there will be family restoration as parents and children are united as one around the centrality of Jesus, around the great Messiah. Ultimate healing in relationships and in the family. Friends, Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he says that those who reject him will live forever in punishment. But those who follow him, revere him, and obey him will be his treasured possession forever. The book of Malachi ends asking the question, which way will Israel go? Which way will Israel go? But the far more important question for us as we sit here today is what? Which way will we go? Which way will we go of the paths that are described here? 
Are we going to follow after Jesus Christ? If you're here today and you want to know more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, or if you're here today and you say, I need to become a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you to take the Connect card that is in the rows that we have. And on there, there is a little place that you can mark, Today, I accepted Jesus. Maybe that is true in your life, or maybe you just want more information about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I want to encourage you to fill that out and request that information. I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to know and follow Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says, this is the most important thing that can happen in our life. That we are his followers, that we fear the Lord and are obedient to him. Let's pray that that would be true of us. Father, as we come before you, we praise you and we honor you because you are our great God. And and we pray that your spirit would be at work in us, helping us to recognize we are your treasured possession if we are your followers. And that ultimately you have great reward for us, no matter how challenging, no matter how hard things are right now. You have ultimate good for us as we stand with you forever and eternity. We look forward to that day. We give you thanks for it. And we live in the joy that comes from that hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.